Welcome to my Japanese Green Tea Podcast, a show dedicated to Japanese tea. Hosted by tea blogger Ricardo Caicedo. Welcome to episode 45 of my Japanese Green Tea Podcast. With us today is Noli Ergas from Sugimoto Tea. He's a regular guest on this show. Hi, Noli. Thanks for joining. Hey, Ricardo. Thanks for having me again. I'm sure that a lot of people know who you are, but just in case, could you give us a, a quick intro to yourself? Sure, yeah. I started with Sugimoto Tea Company seven years ago. It was after I had gotten back from living in Japan. I've lived in Japan a total of two and a half years. Uh, but I really got into tea once I started working with Sugimoto. So yeah, that was 2013. I think I did my first podcast with you in 2014, maybe.、Lovely、And、uh, yeah, it was, it was quite a while ago. I think this might be number three or four that we've done. But there's a topic that、um, I've been getting into a lot, and、uh, you've also been very interested in. So I said, hey, maybe we should do another podcast. Yeah, today we're going to talk about Japanese tea cultivars. Yeah, excited. Why should the average tea lover care about cultivars? So, yeah, that's a good question.、Uh, I think first it might be good just for those listeners who don't know what we're talking about to、uh, kind of answer what a cultivar is. So, this is a pretty simple、uh, answer. Cultivar is a portmanteau of cultivated variety, which means that people made it. Uh, through selective breeding, usually, and that is a genetic line that they continue to use. So, before this, you grew tea plants from seeds, right? So, you never exactly knew you know, what the characteristics of this plant versus that plant versus all of them together was going to be like. So, that's the real benefit of cultivars is predictability. You know what. You don't know the, the genetic makeup per se, like, and you don't care. All you care about is you know things about the tea, like how it's going to taste and、uh, how big the leaf is going to be, and a lot of different things like that. So, I think a, a good thing to think about, too, like people ask me this question a lot, like, you know, well, what's special about cultivars? Why do you care about them? And really, there's two sides of it. Everyone who likes tea thinks about. Well, what's the cultivar going to taste like? They must have chosen this cultivar because it tastes really good. It's really green. So I will like it as a consumer. The reality is, most of the cultivars have really been developed and chosen based on the farmer's considerations. One good example is harvest time. If you have 100 hectares of tea, which would be quite a lot, And it all was ready to harvest at the same time, you have to get to all 100 hectares very quickly, or the tea is not at its prime. And you might not be able to do that. So, if you plant some that's ready to harvest earlier, some that's ready to harvest in the middle, and some that's ready to harvest later, then you can pick all the tea bushes when they're at their prime to pick. So, considerations like that how strong it is against frost, how strong it is against disease. And a lot of other factors, how well it fends off pests, you know, those kinds of things are actually the real reason that most of the cultivars were developed. But of course, as tea lovers, we care about how do they taste and what's the color of the cup. When, when exactly did cultivar use 
started in Japan? Yeah, so um, the key to unlocking cultivars was propagating tea plants by cuttings. So before that, virtually all tea was propagated by seed. And when someone figured out, oh, hey, I can just like cut this branch off and put it in the ground and it starts to grow roots. Well, when you do that, you no longer have to have fertilization of a flower and producing seeds. So the cutting has the exact same genetic material as the mother plant, you could say, even though there's no father plant, uh, you could call that the mother plant. When people were figuring out how to do this would be when cultivars, I guess, really started. It's hard to say when that is. The earliest record of a cultivar that I can find is 1921. Um, so it's, I think it's safe to say probably the beginning of the 20th century uh, was whenever the, the way to make cultivars um, by propagating by cutting started in Japan. Like it took a long time before normal people started to care about it. Has that been like recently where when people really want to try a, a special cultivar? So that is actually super, super recent. So if, if we're telling a story, uh, the time that people care about cultivars, frankly, is now. Um, the cultivar started early 20th century, and there's a lot of things that happen in between. The farmers are the ones that started caring about cultivars first, and then the government, and now about a hundred years later, people, so consumers, are starting to care about cultivars. And for Japanese green tea, it has been mostly inside Japan. Yeah, it's actually, that might be hard to say. Um, so it might be helpful to get just a little bit of uh, kind of history of the cultivars so that we can kind of put this in context and sure. uh, understand like how people like you and me came to know about cultivars and, and care about them. So I would say like the Well, the 1920s was when kind of the earliest, the earliest cultivars that can be traced back to then were developed. And by developed, I mean discovered, really, by just propagating some plant that originally was grown from seed by cuttings. Uh, the Japanese government, because tea was such a huge crop in Japan and there were such massive exports, especially in the 30s and 40s and 50s, Uh, the Japanese government started to pour a lot of money into research. And this really started to happen, I would say, maybe 50s. Uh, in 1953, the Japanese government started actually registering cultivars. And there were also a lot of tea research centers set up around Japan. So there's, there's a few in Shizuoka, um, in Kagoshima. They have some in Kyoto. Now there's there's fewer and there's uh, like set ones, but or some of them have, you know, changed location and name. But these research centers became a place where they basically just started experimenting. And the government through well, through government funding, whether it be uh, the federal government or the prefectural governments of Japan, they would uh, fund these propagations of just, you know, probably hundreds, thousands of different crosses of tea plants, then those would, the successful ones would become registered and then farmers would start using them. So originally it's farmers that cared about cultivars because they wanted predictability, they wanted to lower their costs, uh, and they wanted to increase their yields. So the 
Japanese tea farmers, I think it was black tea that probably picked up uh, cultivars first in Kagoshima. Um, and that was happening like in the 50s, 60s. That's why a lot of the black tea cultivars are actually early registered earlier. And that's also when black tea uh, was a really valuable export product in Japan. And then yeah, I would say it was probably the 70s before tea cultivars started becoming more prevalent in the sense of farmers actually using them um, in places like Shizuoka and in Uji, Kyoto. And so you probably didn't have the even even the ability to have single cultivar teas that many people could get their hands on until about the 80s. But realistically, the 90s is when some small artisan farms were like, oh, we're going to offer this single cultivar tea. In the 90s, you had Japanese people who could actually get their hands on single cultivar teas. Fast forward another 10, 15 years, and finally you have Western people like myself in the U.S. and you in Colombia that actually arguably you, you probably have a difficult time, <laughs> a much more difficult time getting your hand on uh, cultivars than, than I can, yeah. even if I didn't work for a tea company. So, yeah, now now people care because they can, because we can actually buy them. And I think, well, uh, I have no proof, but I, I guess there was some influence by wine, because wine has always been like, what, what's the variety of the grape? Where did it come from? You know, like, so yeah, it, that's a it, great, it was like more natural way to sell tea. Oh, it comes from this place and, and, and it's a single origin, single cultivar. So wine is actually a great analog. And in fact, it's generally what I point to whenever the question of why do we, why should we care about cultivars comes up? I didn't mention this when I answered the question for you, but uh, generally when I'm talking to people, if they ask the question, I say, well, okay, if you like wine, you can get a Pinot Noir or you can get a Malbec or you can get a Riesling or you can get, there's all these different uh, types of wine varietals, which the term varietal is equal to cultivar. Uh, wine just is special older, it's got its own history and sophistication, and, and so they happen to use the term varietal, but virtually every other agricultural product, like apples, well, and there's a lot of different products, uh, agricultural products that, that use the term cultivar, so that's the most common term. So we're talking about the same thing, and with wine, you can get that level of college sophistication in your enjoyment of wine. You can get a single estate or I believe they're just called estate wines, that's of a certain varietal. And so you can know all this really specific information when you're enjoying your wine. And it allows you to taste test different ones and compare them and enjoy this other dimension of wine. With Japanese tea, generally tea manufacturers are purchasing lots of aracha, the crude tea, from different farms. It's a makeup of different cultivars, and then the tea manufacturer just blends it all together and produces a finished tea, sencha typically. And that tea, the goal is to make it the same flavor year after year. So that means the ratio of the different tea estates it's coming from changes. And sometimes even the, well, often even the ratio and the presence or absence of different cultivars gets uh, into that mix. 
But when you buy it as a consumer, all I know is, oh, I like Sugimoto tea. And there's often very little other information that's there. So if you know the cultivar of the tea that you're drinking, it just adds this extra level of connection, I would say, with your tea. And if you can get a single cultivar and a single estate tea, even better, now you have the cultivar and the region or terroir that you know. And it just makes it a more interesting and enjoyable experience, I feel. Yeah, I think that kind of helps. Like, I'm going to tell you a story. Like, I don't know anything about wine, right? I, I barely drink mm -hmm. wine. Uh, I don't know, order it at, at restaurants. or But my wife, she likes to drink every now and then at home. So I, I get to try. She She's also not very much into wine. But but the last time with some friends, we, we tried one. I, I think it's called, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Italian, Lambrusco. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a type of wine. I, I don't know if that comes from a certain varietal, but yeah, sparkling red wine. Yeah, usually, it it does have like some varietals, like like about six, but but they're like they start with Lambrusco too. So Lambrusco, I don't know what. Well, anyway, we really liked it. We we are not mm -hmm. wine experts. We don't know if it's high quality or not. We just liked it. And then when we saw it at some supermarket, or we, we didn't even care what the brand was. We, we, oh, this is a Lambrusco, the one we liked, so we bought it. <laughs> <laughs> I also love Lambrusco. Um, I haven't had it many times, but I actually have a bottle in my fridge right now that I'm looking forward to opening up. Uh, but it's funny that you, you bring up the Italian wine um, because actually wine is interesting in that like wine, generally you, you purchase your wine based either on the varietal or the region. And historically, it was more region, so this is just a bit of side trivia. But like Champagne in France or Bordeaux, uh, also in France, these are wines that are named after the growing region, and they have a, you know, they're protected internationally. If you use this term, it has to be from this region. And actually, in France, if you have that geographic designation like Bordeaux, you're legally not allowed to say what varietals of grapes went into that wine. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. The wine world is very, very different. There's a lot of different countries and, and traditions. Uh, very, very different from the, the tea world. But I believe but a lot that, of that it's, it should be more similar. Like, if you can tell, like, what cultivar your tea is from and what was the company that made it, you know, because it, it carries the story. Oh, it's it comes from this region and... Uh, wine is very different from the tea world in a lot of ways, but um, that's me being someone in tea that knows tea very well, seeing uh, wine as being kind of sometimes weird and different. But from an outsider's perspective, if you're just a general consumer, there's lots of different parallels between wine and tea. And, uh, you know, the fact that there are varietals and cultivars, that terroir is something that you can get a single estate, uh, either wine or tea. There's actually a lot of parallels, and I think what what got me interested in the topic of cultivars is seeing wine enthusiasts, seeing how involved they get in the details, the nitty-gritty details of the wine that they enjoy, and recognizing that people who really enjoy tea often can't get that level of involvement because that information is not available to them. 
Okay, so regarding the cultivars from Sugimoto tea, which cultivars have, has the company offered? Yes, yeah, so we've um, we started this program about three years ago, I think, and we started with Yabukita um, because it is something like 75% of all the tea grown in Japan is Yabukita. Um, so if your tea doesn't say which if your your package or you know when you purchase online. If it doesn't say what's inside, chances are it is either mostly or entirely Yabukita cultivar. And not to say that that's bad. Yabukita, the reason that it's so prevalent is that it's good for farmers in that it has a high yield. It's really cold resistant, pest resistant, and it has a good flavor. Um, and so for consumers, like you just know you're getting a solid tea if you get Yabukita. And often the other cultivars aren't as common because they don't have as high a yield. So maybe they're more expensive to produce or they're not as strong against the frost or things like that. So we started with Yabukita and then we actually, we were trying to do single estate teas. Um, I thought that was a good dimension to add to the program as well. Um, and we focused on a Kagoshima estate when we moved from, you know, to the next tea. And I didn't think about it at the time. It wasn't really intentional, but it, it just so happened that we kind of did a history of tea cultivars when, when we released our products. So we did Yabukita. I believe next was, which by the way, Yabukita is also from the 1920s. And it was a um, cutting from a what is called native cultivar in English. It's often how it's translated. Uh, it basically just is means a tea plant grown from seed, which in Japan, the tea seeds were brought from China from the Buddhist monks. So to call anything native cultivar, I think, is a bit misleading <laughs> since I, I don't believe I don't know that tea is actually native to Japan at all. But Yabukita was a cutting of a Shizuoka plant. So the most common tea in all of Japan is this cultivar that was from a, quote, native cultivar, meaning grown from seed, plant in Shizuoka. The next cultivar that we offered was Asatsuyu. Asatsuyu was also from the 1920s when it was um, cut from a plant actually in Kyoto. So Yabukita, you could see as being like the Shizuoka tea and Asatsuyu being the Kyoto tea. And then the next cultivar that we released was Saemidori, which is actually a cross between Yabukita and Asatsuyu. So it was totally unintentional, but we ended up kind of creating this story uh, that followed basically the, the start of cultivars and, and blending um, two of the most common regional cultivars. And you mostly sold that to, to companies, not, not to individuals. Yeah, so when we started, um, we actually, for the first whole three years, we were 100% wholesale, um, so only doing business to business for the single cultivar teas. Um, now, because of the pandemic situation, uh, most of our customers for these teas are not in normal operation, and so they're either not at all able to or just don't think it would be a good business decision to uh, bring on something as special as a single cultivar tea. So we have a little bit more um, stock than we plan to have. And uh, we're actually going to start selling um, smaller 50-gram bags of uh, certain single cultivars. Oh, very good. How do the prices compare 
between Yabukita and, and the other ones. Yeah, so Yabukita is by far the most common cultivar in Japan for good reason. Um, like I mentioned, the hardiness to frost, resistance against pests, the high yield, and all of these things mean that if you plant Yabukita in your field as a farmer, then you're going to have a high yield with less effort and less loss of tea plants than if you planted another cultivar. So Yabukita ends up being a good solid tea that's also relatively economical. Most other cultivars um, are going to be lower yield or they're not going to be as hardy, hence leading to a lower yield, which means they'll be more expensive if you plant the same amount of um, tea fields with that cultivar. So the prices vary actually um, quite strongly. Uh, the Yabukita versus another cultivar, it can be like double the price, um, sometimes even triple or quadruple the price. A lot of other factors play in because if you're doing a single cultivar tea, you know, the scale of the farm plays a huge role. So there's actually a lot of variability. Um, we actually made – it was an internal communication mistake uh, that led us to <laughs> – offer one price for all of the single cultivars that we offered, meaning that the first one was, I think, uh, the first and second ones were priced fairly, but um, after that, we've actually been taking a much smaller margin than we normally do um, on these teas. So that'll probably be changing this year, but I was really glad that we could um, offer these single cultivars, single estate teas for uh, such a reasonable price up until now. Which ones have sold the most? Uh, so the the quickest selling ones were Saimidori and then Okumidori. Saimidori was the third one that we offered, or sorry, yeah, third one that we were, that we offered, and that is the the only one we've had thus far where we've just had people begging us to really bring it back. The idea of our program, though, because, you know, if we tried to carry all these different single, single cultivar teas, there's probably about a hundred or more, um, cultivars registered in Japan. And there's also ones that are not registered. So we'd have to have this massive inventory that would be, uh, really difficult to go through. So our idea is that we bring in like one case, about 30 kilos of a cultivar, and then we carry that until it sells out, and then we bring in another one. So Saimidori was tremendously popular. Okumidori, we actually only had in stock for two weeks. Um, so that one did super well as well. Okay, I see. And how about in, in Japan? What's the market for, for single cultivar teas? So I actually talked with my friend Oscar Brakel recently. He's a Swedish guy in Japan who um, is really in love with teas. Oscar, I know you've met him as well. Yeah. He, I think, has a much better uh, grasp on that than I do being in Japan. According to him, it's still something that's very small and minor. It's If you spend any time in Japan, you quickly realize that modern Japanese people aren't paying attention to tea, really. Uh, you know, they prefer drinking tea out of uh, plastic bottles that <laughs> you can just buy from a vending machine. So... As a concept, yeah, it was born in Japan, and the demand started in Japan, but I think the interest from people overseas is quickly growing, and if it does not already match the, the demand within Japan, um, I think it will soon. Oh, really? 
Yeah, I think there's a there's a number of specialty tea companies, at least here in the United States, but I believe also in Europe um, and likely in other parts of the world where they're offering single cultivar Japanese teas. So it's definitely something that if you're interested in it in the U.S., um, for example, you can get your hands on it if you know where to look. And how about your personal favorite cultivar? So that's funny. Uh, my favorite cultivar that we've carried thus far has been Asanoka, which uh, I'm sure people from my company wouldn't want to hear because it is the Kagoshima tea cultivar developed in Kagoshima and grown exclusively in Kagoshima. The thing that I just I really liked about it, it was so different. It had this uh, characteristic um, aroma and flavor that, to me, struck me as not even being sencha. Like if you, uh, you know, were familiar with the standard sencha flavor, which is basically yabukita flavor, uh, you could try asanoka and think, wow, this must is this like a Chinese tea or something? Uh, <laughs> if you know Chinese tea really well, you probably wouldn't think that, but. Um, to me, it was just such an oddball. It was so floral. I, the at least the one that I had um, had no bitterness to it. It had a great sweetness, but it didn't have that kind of grassy vegetal mist that's really characteristic of sencha. So the other ones that I've really enjoyed. I mean, I think Sai Midori was great. The Oko Midori is great. Right now we have Oko Yutaka, which is also excellent. Um, so there's been a lot of really really awesome ones. Uh, one that also uh, we hope to carry in the future, but that I've, I've really enjoyed has been Shizu 7132. And that one is known for having a very distinct Sakura fragrance to it. So it smells like cherry blossoms. Awesome. I've tried the Asatsuyu from Sugimoto yep. tea. And mm -hmm. that one has been the one I like the most because I like the, like the powerful umami taste. Yeah, that one's also great. I mean, frankly, they've all been really great, and it's almost like picking a favorite amongst them is almost like being a parent and picking a favorite amongst your children. <laughs> so <laughs> difficult question to be asked. Uh, but one thing that uh, I feel would be good to kind of tie everything together is uh, just to quickly go over where these cultivars came from or, or how they're developed, if that's cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I talked about how the original ones, they just kind of cut off of a plant that grow, grew from seed, and that has been called native cultivars. So you could say Yabukita is native of Shizuoka or Asatsuyu is native of, of Kyoto. But there's a lot of different ways to actually uh, come up with the cultivars. So a lot of them have been um, a mix of established cultivars mixed with other native cultivars. So say you have a bush in... Mie Ken, Mie Prefecture, and you cross that with a known cultivar, um, that, you know, sometimes that's how a cultivar is developed. You also get a, a, mostly nowadays, the cultivars are hybrids of known cultivars. Like I said, Sai Midori is a cross between Yabukita and Asatsuyu. So most of these cultivars, you can draw lineage of the different um, cultivars before them that you know were crossed and came up with a new cultivar. Uh, there's also another weird way it can be done is you can take, say, Yabukita or Asatsuyu, for example, take the cultivar Asatsuyu, and the plants have identical genetic material, but the flowers and the pollen um, are still going to be mixed up, just like, you know, if... You have one child with someone and another child with someone. Like they're not the same 
children. Their their DNA is mixed up. So you can actually have cultivars come from mixed two asatsuyu plants by fertilization, grow the seed, and then that could be another uh, cultivar. And that's how you Yutaka Midori came. There's also something rather strange that doesn't happen with in the animal world, and that is that plants can just sprout a mutant bud <laughs> and it can grow this branch that's actually genetically different from the whole rest of the plant. In Japanese, it's called edagawari. Uh, in English, it's called a bud sport. And so there's actually a cultivar, kiraga, that is just something that sprouted off a yabukita bush and, you know, the farmer or, or person in the testing facility, the researcher's facility, recognized, hey, this is different. And then they made cuttings of that and a new cultivar um, was established based on that. So there's a lot of different ways that these cultivars can come to be. And uh, to me, it just makes it that much more interesting. You know, if you really want to get, if you really want to dive into all the details about your tea and go on this educational journey just by sipping a cup of tea. Whereas, you know, like I said, if you just bought some company standard sencha, you, you miss out on all of that. Yeah, I guess we're, we're running out of time. But mm -hmm. Thank you very much for, for all your knowledge about cultivars. And I hope that the future is, is full of Japanese tea cultivars. And hopefully that would be the near future. Yeah, before we end, I do want to share with people... Um, if you want an introduction to cultivars, uh, Oscar Brakel's bilingual book, both in Japanese and English, uh, really talks about cultivars very well and introduces some of the more common cultivars and gives little profiles on them. And then I also need to say the absolute best collection of information on Japanese tea cultivars available is on myjapanesegreentea.com. Ricardo, you've done an excellent job uh, highlighting a lot of different cultivars, talking about them, giving the list of the um, cultivars that are registered by MAFF and other cultivars uh, that are registered with the government. And then I think you're also doing some of the cultivars that aren't registered with the government. It's still a so, work in progress, but yeah, a lot of people have, have liked it, even though most of those Tea cultivars are really hard to, to get a hold of. Yeah, so thank you so much for your efforts, Ricardo. To be honest, whenever I started my journey of looking through the different cultivars, I relied heavily on the information that, that you have on the Internet. Since then, I've gotten some books in Japanese um, and spoken with some people that have worked in the tea research centers. And I have a lot more resources now, but um, I really got my start looking at myjapanesegreentea.com. Th thank you for reading. For sure. Okay, Noli, so have a, a great weekend and we'll be in touch. All right, great great talking with you as always, okay. Ricardo. Goodbye. Keep the tea pouring. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to my Japanese Green Tea Podcast. Join us again next time 